You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky, and I'm going to hit you with some statistics. In 2018, women accounted for 51% of the U.S. population. We earned more than 57% of undergraduate degrees, more than 59% of master's degrees. We also accounted for 47% of the U.S. labor force and over 52% of the college-educated workforce, and while we hold almost 52% of all management and professional-level jobs, we lag substantially behind men when it comes to one big thing, leadership positions. There is an enormous leadership gap in law, in medicine, in academia, in finance, in politics, and we are going to spend the next half hour trying to bridge it with this week's guest, Laura Cox Kaplan. She is host of the She Said, She Said podcast, and she is focused on helping women rise to pretty much any occasion. The lack of women in senior positions in business and politics is one of the big reasons that Laura started her show. And in addition to it, she's also an adjunct professor at American University. Thanks for being here. Thanks for coming into the studio. I'm so thrilled to be here, Jean. Thanks for having me. Sure. I want to start with She Said, She Said, which is a fabulous name, by the way. Thank you. You left a big job and a big paycheck to launch it. So Why'd you do that? Yeah. So I was a partner, an executive level partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers for about 12 years. I ran government and public policy and sat on the management team. I had really loved my work at the firm. PwC was really focused on the recruitment and retention of women. And it was through those efforts that I became really focused on what those problems were. I looked at our research internally, Uh and it occurred to me that I was seeing parallels in other places, including and particularly in politics, which was the area that I was most responsible for because I was responsible for our, our strategy in Washington. One of the things that I learned in writing Women With Money was that when you look at the wage gap, younger women come into the workforce making salaries that are much, much closer to that of men their age. As we age, though, as we get to be more senior, as we hit upon that time in our lives when we might have other things that we want to do, like, say, having children, the salary gap opens way back up again and never, ever closes. Is that the research that you were talking about? That's part of the research. Um, Really, one of the things that we focused the most on was the fact that oftentimes when women would reach a particular point in her career, usually after the birth of a child or maybe two, 
when she would leave to take maternity leave, she might not come back. So we we created a number of different programs to actually bridge that gap so that you didn't lose momentum. You were assigned to a coach. You could take a, a break, essentially, of up to five years, but you still had to keep up with your continuing education, and the firm would pay for that. But what occurred to me is that there was a gap in how we thought about sort of the psychological elements of what happens to women in the workforce. For me personally, it was a bit of a wake-up call. I had a good friend who wrote what is now a very famous book. Sheryl Sandberg wrote Lean In. Mm -hmm. Sheryl's a personal friend. And before the launch of the book in 2012, she asked me to write my Lean In story. And this was after I had been with the firm not quite a decade, but pretty close. And as I sat down to write my story about some, you know, moment in which I had really leaned into my career, I drew back to college. And it was a great story. But really, well, tell us the story. <laughs> it wasn't that great. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the point. It was a fine story. But what occurred to me is that I really hadn't been leaning in and doing that stuff that would challenge me in the way that I felt like I needed to be challenged in the way that she was talking about in the book. And so just the exercise of going through that was a wake-up call to me to say, wait a minute, why am I not taking these big risks? What is it that's holding me back? And what is this notion of fear? Why am I afraid? And why, why can't I overcome this? And personally, when you looked at that, what was the answer? Well, <laughs> it put me on a trajectory of really jumping in and figuring it out. And that led me to a much deeper level of self-awareness, both about the research and the pieces of the puzzle that I felt like were missing as we talked to women in the firm, but also as we thought more broadly about women in politics, women in the C-suite, all of these other sort of categories where women didn't seem to be aspiring. When you look at the problem that you're trying to solve then with she said, she said, with your other work, is that it in a nutshell to encourage women to get women to aspire? I think it's a little different than that. Here's the way I would articulate it. It is showing women a broader range of role models, a broader range of women who are leading, inspiring, and having an impact. Women that are more politically diverse, women who have taken dramatically different paths, if you will. Every woman is not going to be Sheryl Sandberg. I love Sheryl. She's awesome. But not everybody's going to fit that bill. Not everybody's going to share the same political ideology that she shares. And when we reduce women to this, this is the box that you have to aspire to, and this is what you're going for, you eliminate a huge portion of the female population. So she said, she said, what we're trying to do is to have conversations with a much broader range of women who are very inspiring, who are having an impact, who teach us something, but they may be different voices than what you've heard in the past. We also talk about their struggles and their journey and how they encountered various obstacles and what they did to persevere. So if you were to round those obstacles up, why do you think it is that what are we now, five years past lean-in, seven years past lean-in? Yeah, 2012, 2013. Yeah. So yeah. why do you think 
more women are not in leadership positions in in 2019. And I'm I'm not going to point to all the examples, but even if you just look at the number of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, it's lower than it was several years ago. Yeah, I wish I had the answer. Um, I think this is one piece of that puzzle, this notion of becoming more aware of the way in which we think about experiences, how we, how for, for example, how we think about a setback and how we process that versus how a man thinks about a setback and processes that. How is it different? Well, the research has shown us, and there's actually data to support this. There's a who uh, a, a famous neuroscientist named Dr. Daniel Amen, who did some research sure. a number of years ago and wrote several famous books. His research showed us that women's brains operate at th- with 30% more capacity than men's brains in the frontal cortex. Now, of course, remember what happens in that frontal cortex. It's your self-regulatory zone right? It's the way that you interpret your surroundings. It's the way that you're processing, right, and perceiving. So if you go in to give a speech, you know, you you are likely to be much better at reading the room than your male counterpart, right? But that additional 30% is what oftentimes can give women that extra capacity, and that can lead to rumination and overthinking. For example, there are lots of differences between women and men. Historically, we weren't willing to admit that, even though it was clear that you could look at women and men and there were clear differences. But there was a reluctance to say there's really a difference in the way that we process for fear that we would be it would it would seem women were less than. And that's not at all what we're talking about. We're saying, look, there are scientific differences. It's not true for every single woman, but it's true for an awful lot of women. And if we know that that's the case, what can we do to recognize it and then develop some tools so that it doesn't stop us in our tracks? And it's true not just in leadership. It's true in money. I mean, we were talking before we turned on the mics today about the research that I had done for women with money, and it's largely the same, that you do have to understand who you are and how you behave as an individual when it comes to your finances in order to make progress, and the same is true in your work. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And it's closely tied to things like confidence, right? I think historically we've thought about confidence as being an inherent trait, and the reality is research is showing us that that's more of a skill, something that you can work on and fine-tune with training and practice. And on my own podcast, where we talk a lot about confidence, we talk a lot about this notion of perfection, which, frankly, I always thought was a good thing. It's not a good thing. Not a good thing. (laughs) Good good enough. Good enough. (laughs) That's right. How these things ultimately fit together and can really, really stop you in your tracks. Understanding those. I I think I grew up with this notion that perfection was good and confidence was bad. And in fact, it's really the opposite, right? It's something that you want to be very self-aware of. It's hard to get ourselves to the point where we don't expect perfection, though. I mean, many of us I know and many of my listeners, we got A's. We were school president. We were leaders up until a point in our lives where we were no longer comfortable stepping into that. Do you think that leadership dies somewhere around puberty? (laughs) Gosh, I hope not. I really hope not. I think part of it is the mindset around 
how we think about failure and setback. And really, don't even talk about failure, right? Just setback and what you can learn from those setbacks. Well, what is so different about the way women think about setbacks versus men? I think women can overpersonalize anything that is negative or perceived to be negative, whether it's an outright failure, you completely are knocked on your can, it's a setback, you gave a speech, it was terrible, this interview today, if I don't do well, I'm going to beat myself up, you know, whatever it happens to be, not doing as well as you think, and then ultimately beating yourself up. If we can learn to think about, and this is true of of the leaders that I talk to on the podcast, learning to reframe those opportunities or those challenges as opportunities, opportunities to learn, opportunities to think about how you could do it differently, how you can learn better the next time. The earlier in life that we start that with young girls, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and we work on this all the time. She has this saying that we call brilliant mistakes. She actually learned this at school, which is amazing, because they're talking about this notion of overcoming setbacks Mm -hmm. and making that just part of the process. That's part of the learning process. Making brilliant mistakes is part of how you learn. And if we can teach young women how to think along those lines, I think it makes it easier when you get to the point in your career where you're getting a personal evaluation. 80 to 90 percent of it is wholly positive, but 10 to 20 percent is constructive and or negative areas for improvement. For an awful lot of people, especially if you're a perfectionist, you see that and it's like a knife to the heart and you say to yourself, oh my gosh, I thought I was doing so great. Well, you were. 90% of your evaluation was entirely positive. But allowing that 10% or 20% to be the area that you focus on, you've really got to stop yourself and say, wait a minute, I've got to put this in perspective. One of the things that I think is so brilliant, a brilliant way to think about taking in that constructive criticism is to recognize that you may be a person who struggles with perfection, which also is linked to control, (laughs) and think about what you can do to depersonalize a situation. For example, coming up with a series of questions that you might ask the evaluator. Great. Tell me more about that. Have you ever struggled with this? Do you know others who have struggled with this? What did they do? So that you're taking control back. It makes you feel more comfortable and more empowered as opposed to just receiving the information. So true. Absolutely so true on the job, but also so true with money because we know it's all about control. Although I do have to acknowledge that as you were telling this story about the negative feedback, I did a Today Show segment yesterday that went off great. I got through most of my points, even though they cut my time. And yet when I talked to my husband afterwards, he said, you were great, but your bangs were in your eyes. (laughs) And I... All day. All I kept thinking was my bangs were in my eyes. Nobody could see my bangs were in my eyes. And it's really hard. I, I did make a haircut appointment. I'm going today. But it beyond that, it is really, really hard to come off of that negative, that negative feedback. But but we are going to try. I, I want to talk about politics specifically, but before we do that, let me just remind everybody. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money and make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if all of that helped you reach your financial goals faster? 
This all starts with a financial checkup. It starts with an understanding of what you own and what you owe, and from there, Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demandmorenow. I am talking with Laura Cox Kaplan, host of the She Said, She Said podcast. At the top of the show, we mentioned how women are underrepresented in politics. And and this is true despite the number of women who won in the 2018 elections, correct? That is correct. So as we head toward 2020, what should we all be thinking about? And I'd love to have this conversation without partisan viewpoints Mm -hmm. entering the equation, because I know we've got listeners who are on both sides of the aisle. And I, I think that the your message, if I understand it correctly, is really about getting involved no matter where you stand. That is exactly right. But but I also think it's important to 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 say one thing, and this is not a partisan comment comment, it's just a fact. We're at a high watermark in terms of the overall number of women who were elected to the Congress. And while that number is still only about 23 percent or so of the overall population, it is disproportionately skewed to the Democratic side of the aisle. That's super and that's great. But if you have um, such a small, you know, you, you have a huge gap in the number of women on the Republican side. And so it's incredibly important that we try to think holistically about how we can encourage women on both sides of the aisle to ultimately get engaged. As you know, Jean, I am a Republican, and I am very concerned about getting more women elected on both sides of the aisle. And I work a lot with a number of bipartisan organizations that are focused on that particular objective. But there are differences in how we see the world, right? When we only look at one side, you're not going to close the gap on the other side. And I think that's a real problem because, as we talked about before, you leave so many women on the field. And women on the right may be motivated to run uh, for different reasons than women on the left. Sometimes they're the same reasons, but sometimes they're different reasons. And we simply have to be much broader in our thinking about the importance of encouraging more women to engage. Why is it so important? And this may seem like a very basic question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why do we need more women to engage? And by to engage, do you mean to run or are there other ways to engage? All of the above. Yes, absolutely. Why is it important? For the same reasons that it's important to have diversity in the boardroom, diversity in the C-suite, the perspective that women bring to the table, as you know, is different than the perspective that is brought by men. It doesn't mean better or worse. It means different. It means without that, you don't have that perspective at the table. And as it relates to the operation of our government, that is incredibly important if more than half of your population is not well represented um, in representative government. What ways do you suggest getting involved if you're not interested in running? There are a number of different groups and organizations that are focused on encouraging women to get more uh, engaged civically. I am on the board of an organization called the Policy Circle, which I think is a really interesting idea. A good friend of mine started it about two years ago, and they now have circles in 
I think, about almost 40 states. And there are several thousand women that are now involved. The goal of this, similar to what you might think of with a book club, and I don't mean it to sound sort of less serious by saying that. What I mean by that is it's an opportunity for women to gather together. They're given a set a policy brief on a particular topic, tax reform, immigration reform, healthcare reform, any number of topics like that. They read the brief in advance, just like you would read a book before a book club. And then they sit down in small circles. They have a timer. Each person provides a perspective around the table. The goal is to not only learn a bit more about the intricacies of the policy process and the various considerations related to that, but most importantly, it's to make you more confident talking about it. All of these women are smart women. They run companies. They're very accomplished. They read the Wall Street Journal. They know what's going on in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be comfortable talking about those issues. So this is a group that helps to empower them to use their voices. And guess what? We have women, a few, already thinking about running for office, running at the state and local level, running for Congress, running for city council, engaging in a way that she might not have been inclined to do otherwise. And these are women from both sides? Both sides of the aisle. How do you suggest taking that skill set and applying it to becoming a leader in your company and becoming more confident with your money. I mean, just the exercise of asking for more money is really, really difficult for a lot of women. I think understanding strategically where you fit into the organization is oftentimes something that women don't do as well as men. We tend to be inclined to work incredibly hard. We're going for that A. We put our heads down. We work, 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 and we think to ourselves, they're just going to notice me. The more we can think strategically about where we fit in, the more we're able to translate what we're doing into value that we can then more clearly articulate. I think understanding where you fit in the broader equation as it relates to politics and policy is another component of that. It makes you smarter, more strategic. How does what you're doing in your company, in your job, what impact does tax reform have on what you're doing? What impact do all of these other issues have on you? And is there a way to articulate that more strategically? Talk about a way to impress your boss, right? It really can encourage you to think bigger picture about not only where you fit in that organization, but where you fit in the broader universe. You developed a self-awareness and leadership curriculum for undergraduate women. You teach it every year at American University. Why is self-awareness so important in improving our leadership skills? And what are the big takeaways from this course if you had to boil it down to, you know, two minutes? Sure. The course title is very audacious. Women, Leadership, Politics, and Power, Building Awareness, Tools, and Capabilities for Success in Business and in Life. I know you must love this tagline because you have a big, long tagline I on do. your book. I do. I'm all, I'm all about long Jean's going to love this. Yeah. <laughs> but it really encapsulates this notion of you know, thinking very holistically about your career. So why is self-awareness so important? 
I think, unfortunately and historically, we've not been taught to be super introspective about why we do what we do. I think, you know, your book is a great example of how we think about our money. Um, Teaching young women how to think about how other people see them is one of the places where we start in the course. We ask them uh, to go through a series of exercises where they get feedback from Uh, Three to five people, frankly, people that are in their orbit, somebody who's super close to you, but then try to find people that maybe you don't know as well, but that have had experience with you. For most of these undergraduate students, they've never had an experience where they proactively asked for feedback about their performance. They get grades, which is a form of feedback, Mm -hmm. but it's not the same thing as asking somebody, tell me about things that I do really well. And then share with me areas where you think I may be holding myself back. And the things that people told them are very illuminating to the students because they don't realize that other people see them in the way that they sort of see themselves. I just like the way you ask the question. Share with me ways you think I may be holding myself back. That's very different from share with me things that you think I don't do so well. Yes. And was that intentional? Yes. It's very it's designed to be very constructive, right? There's nothing wrong with you. It's about things that people see you doing to yourself. For example, and I suspect this will resonate with a number of members of your audience, being too hard on ourselves, right? This notion of perfection comes up over and over and over again, holding yourself to such a high standard that's very, very hard to reach, and therefore the setbacks are especially painful for you. So a lot of these women get that feedback that you're really hard on yourself. You should talk to yourself more kindly. Um, Things like that that they say, you know, I never realized that my roommate, my friends, my teacher, my employer, whatever, really saw me doing that to myself, and it was illuminating to them. We started this conversation with your lean-in story and realizing that you hadn't really leaned in since college. If you were writing that story today, how would you write it? (laughs) Very differently, actually. Um, So I, because I literally fell in love with the work and with the desire to try to move the needle in my own small way as it relates to women's engagement, getting more women elected, getting more women in the C-suite, I knew that I had to do more than what I was going to be able to do in my current position at PwC. And I loved my job there. I loved the people that I worked with. But it meant that I needed to separate. I needed to leave the partnership. I needed to leave a very highly paid job. I knew people were going to think I was crazy, (laughs) and many of them, I'm sure, did. The hardest part about leaving, though, was the fact that I was a little bit obsessed with what other people were going to think about me. I worried that they would think I was, that I had been fired. I worried that they would think I was crazy, like I said. Um, I had to get over that notion and recognize, A, they're not going to think I've been fired. I've been here 12 years and have done a really great job. (laughs) And I knew that, right? I had a lot of accomplishments under my belt. Um, So I had to overcome that. And that took some soul searching for me. Um, But that that has been, so far, my biggest lean-in moment is figuring out how to 
really employ my experiences, my skill sets, the work that I want to do, and create this very interesting portfolio of uh, jobs and assignments from the course that I teach to the podcast to the nonprofit boards to two corporate boards. There's a number of things that I'm doing. So it really is a portfolio existence if ever there was one. But it's very different from the structured corporate environment that I was used to. And there are days when it's really a struggle to figure out how to make all the pieces fit. But I love it because it challenges me every day. I do have a tremendous amount of autonomy. I get to decide where I spend my time. There's a huge amount of pressure in that for someone like me who holds myself to a pretty high standard. I am a card-carrying member of the Perfectionist Society, and I work on that every day. Um, but it's an opportunity to really challenge myself in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Laura Cox Kaplan, the podcast is She Said, She Said. We will be tuning in. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And before we head to Mailbag, our producer, Kelly Hultgren, has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, everyone. You know, one of the things that strikes me about leadership these days when women are looking for chances Mm -hmm. to rise within organizations is that we may have to look outside our companies. I mean, I'm thinking of us as an example, right? I mean, we work for this tiny little company. Yes, we do. But you put yourself out there and got on a board. I did. I'm an advisor for a board. So I there is a difference of being a board member and an advisor to the board, but I'm technically a part of the board. I'm an advisor for a nonprofit called Invest in Girls, and it's very much in line with the work that I've been fortunate to do with you for the past five plus years. It's a financial literacy program for high school girls and also serves as a pipeline for getting more girls inspired to pursue careers in financial services in college, which is fantastic. And, you know, exactly what you just said. And a big part of this is for so many decades, we can say we haven't seen women in these leadership positions in some of these industries, the ones you discussed with Laura, law, medicine, financial services. Mm-hmm. So when we don't have role models to to see ourselves in, I don't think we think that we could do it. I think that's a part of the problem and that, you know, systemically we've been working to close this leadership gap in these industries, much like the work you're doing and that Laura is doing. But it's been a really cool experience. The board is dominated by powerhouses. And it's been really cool also to have them become role models for me. Well, and another woman brought you along. Yes, that's right. And I think that that is incredibly important to Mm -hmm. remember that when we are in positions of authority, whether it's on a board, whether it is in a company, whether you are running your homeowners association, Mm -hmm. right? If you're in a position of authority and you have a chance to bring others up, think about women. Think about diversity. Think about people who don't have a voice and bring them along. Yes. And I think, too, we've talked about this a handful of times on the show before. In your experience, you worked with women above you who had more of the mentality of that you had to pay your dues Mm -hmm. in order to get where they were. And it wasn't so much of a helpful or collaborative feeling in the room or the culture at the workplace. And I can't relate to that because I'm so fortunate to have only known this and to think that that could still be happening in other places. It's maddening to me. Yeah, I I hope 
that it's not like I that anymore. I mean, that was the 80s. You know, it was, it was a very, <laughs> very long time ago. Such good music, though. Very good music. <laughs> I do. I, I put on the 80s channel, and when I'm riding my Peloton, yes. I often, there's some great 80s rides. There's this instructor, <laughs> Jen Sherman, and mm-hmm. she and I are not related, but um, <laughs> Sherman is my maiden yes. name for people who don't know that. Uh, I wish we were related because she is cool. <laughs> I mean, she is really cool, and she has amazing taste in music, but she does some awesome 80s rides. Fun. I think you were the one who told me about this. I'm sure it was you, but I think there's a Soul Cycle class to Hamilton. Like, it's oh, Hamilton-only Soul Cycle. There, I believe there is. There was one Peloton ride mm-hmm. also to Hamilton. No surprise, <laughs> Robin Arzone did uh, that one. Yes. I saved it. Because I, I wanted to be able to experience it over and over and over again. I still haven't seen that. You have to go. I know. Do you think it's still worth going without the original cast? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. And I also think that one of the dirty little secrets about theater tickets in New York mm-hmm. is that, and, and I'm sure this is true all over the country, is that if you are willing to go by yourself and just walk up to the box office and say, do you have a single ticket? The chances that you're going to find one are hugely greater and often not even at such a huge premium. And you know I would do that and I have done that. And what I haven't tried doing is negotiating. I don't think you can do that. No? Okay. I think if it's the price on the ticket, you know, maybe you can negotiate (laughs) with your local scalper. I need to find my own scalper. No. No? No. I, I, the is that last illegal? Thing I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what do we have today in the mailbag? Oh, goodness. Uh, first one. First we'll do a question. <laughs> first we'll do a question from Janet. I have been using fraud alerts for me and my husband the past few years for all three credit bureaus, and I extend them every three months when they are about to expire. I have heard you speak of the importance of a credit freeze, but wondered if that is really necessary, if I am keeping the fraud alerts going. I have been hesitant to do a credit freeze as it seems like an extreme measure, and I thought it might be a hassle to unfreeze, though it also is a hassle to call the credit bureau every three months to extend the fraud alert, though thankfully they contact the other three credit bureaus, so it's just one call. I heard one of your earlier podcasts about credit security measures, and it prompted this inquiry. I also had LifeLock in the past and canceled it after a while, though I'm thinking I should probably activate my account again. Do you think they are the best, or is there another one you recommend? I think you mentioned LifeLock and Privacy Guard as the two main players in this area. Just freeze your credit. No, I'm sorry. Did that sound exasperated? I didn't mean to sound exasperated. Here's the difference between a fraud alert and a credit freeze. When you have a fraud alert on your account, Mm -hmm. if if somebody applies for credit in your name under your social security number, the bureau will tell you before it allows that application to go through. If you are frozen— the Bureau will just not allow that application to go through Mm. until you unfreeze. Personally, in this day and age, with so much identity theft and so many data breaches, Mm -hmm. we we could write about this every day. There are so many data breaches. Just freeze your credit and unfreeze your credit before you apply for credit. It's very, very easy to do. Now, I know that there are some people listening who paid attention to the recent thread that we had on the Her Money private Facebook page. There was a woman, there is a woman in our community who, on my advice, froze her credit. And then she went to unfreeze because she was applying for credit, and one of the bureaus was unresponsive. She had a very, very difficult time with its computerized system. She wrote us a note. 
We went to bat for her. We got it unfrozen within a matter of hours. And we will happily go to bat for you as well if you have a problem. I'm pretty sure that you won't need us to go to bat for you. I've done it myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've frozen. I've unfrozen. And the thing about an unfreeze is that it's not as much of unfreezing as it is lifting the freeze. You lift the freeze basically for a week or however long you think it will take to get your application processed. Mm -hmm. And then it just goes right back into place. So it's not too different calls that you have to make. It's just a single one. Okay, great. And we'll do one from Drowning from Side Hustles. That's the name that she used because sometimes people would like to remain anonymous. And I've encouraged everyone on the show before to think of a fun or creative way to put it's your name. It's our own little sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, I love it so much. So thank you, Drowning from Side Hustles, but I'm sorry you're drowning from side hustles. So when I have a break, I like to go on social media to decompress, she writes. But now all I seem to see are posts from auto invites to online parties, etc. for everyone and their pyramid scheme side hustles. I am tired of being asked to spend $90 on cover-up or candles or bags or scent pods, etc. How do you say it? Etc. Etc. So the person <laughs> hosting can make $20, the consultant can make $40, and the company can use the other $20 to make the product and send the consultant on a free trip. All the while, they tell me how easy it is to work from home and they don't have to put their kids in daycare. Living in a small town makes it hard to say no without feeling guilty. Also, as a professional in the community, I can't tell them how I really feel about these overpriced side hustles. Do you have any tips on how to graciously decline all of this spam? It has even started by text now. Thank you in advance for any tips. I love this. I do. I love this, too. I love too. it so much. <laughs> you first. <laughs> okay. First of all, if anybody is being invited to anything by an auto invite or an auto text yeah. that's not personalized in any way, shape, or form, yep. you do not have to go. No. You do not have to answer. Mm -mm. You can just let it go, like mm -hmm. breezily leave it alone. Let it hang out there in the ether. Yep. That's the rudest thing I've ever heard. Like, you yeah. invite somebody to something, I guess, at your house, mm -hmm. but you don't take the time to say, dear Kelly, would you please come? Right. Or just personalize it in some capacity. And it's not only just like a mass invite, like a mass text, but you're also asking us to spend our money and you're not even personalizing yeah. it. So you do not have to go. If you feel you need to respond, these are the four words that I learned from my millennial daughter-in-law. Ah. who it, No. These are the four words that I learned from my millennial stepdaughter, who is brilliant mm -hmm. at this. She is she is brilliant Ooh. at not doing things that she doesn't want to do. Ready? Yes. Oh, I'm waiting. I'd love to, but. Oh, that's good. I'd love to, but. You lead with the positive. I'd love to, but. Yep. And then whatever, fill in the blank. Yep. I'd love to, but I have plans. Right. I'd love to, but I'm working. I'd love to. But I promised my husband I'd stay home and binge friends on Netflix. Right. I'd love to. But I'm allergic to candles. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's good. Right? Like I'd love to, but. I, I'd love to, but. And the quicker you say no, mm -hmm. the less painless this is going to be. Mm. Yep. Right? You sit on it. You fomate. You start thinking about yep. it. That's when the guilt sets in. Just get rid of it. I don't know if you've experienced this on Instagram or if Drowning from Side Hustles has experienced this too, but there are a number of, of our loose ties on Instagram. So not even our close friends who are 
pursuing these side hustles that they could ship the products to us. So we don't have to physically go anywhere to opt in or, you know, invest in their side hustles. And I'd also like to say, like, kudos to these women who are making money doing it. Like, I hope that goes without saying for both of us. Like, if you've got a side hustle and you're making money in this way, that's great. But in the same way that we forgive our friends for not wanting to donate to our charities because they have charities of their own. Mm -hmm. We all need to be spending our money in a way that lines up with our values. And you will find a loyal client base. If the product is any good, you are going to find a loyal client base. go without saying it should sell itself. But what really just makes me chuckle is when I have people who we have not spoken in years reach out and ask if I'm interested in buying their products. It's almost like what we've talked about before of like tapping into your networks that you haven't used in a long time to pursue a new job. It's like there, it takes a little more finessing than what I've experienced. And it, it, sometimes it comes off as a little fake mm-hmm. if, you know, you're just trying to get me to open my wallet. With that said, I think it's awesome that you guys are all hustling out there, but I'm with drowning from side hustles that it needs to come with more of the interpersonal skills and not the sales skills, especially if you guys are close friends or even distant friends. Right. If these people are your good friends, Mm -hmm. they are going to not mind that you you are not say yeah, Yeah. that you're not showing up to buy. I'd love to, but. I'd love to, but. That's really good. And in this week's Thrive, we are answering the question, what does it mean to short a stock? When watching a sports game, would you bet on who's going to lose? Well, Essentially, to short a stock is for an investor to hope that the stock price goes down. Short sellers, and that's what they're called, they bet that a stock, a sector, or a broader benchmark like an index is going to fall in price. And the investor never physically owns the stock during the shorting process. Here's a simplified example of how shorting works. Let's just say that you think company ABC is overpriced at $50 a share. You borrow 100 shares from your brokerage firm, you pay interest on that loan, and you sell those shares for $5,000. Now, time ticks on. And as you suspected, because you're brilliant, the stock price falls. At $40 a share, you buy 100 shares for $4,000, and then you return those shares to your broker. You walk away $1,000 richer minus the investing costs. That's a successful short. But what happens if it goes the other way? What happens if the stock price goes up? Well, let's just say that the stock price rises to $60 a share. It's not because you're not brilliant. You are brilliant. It's just that sometimes this happens. At that point, you pay $6,000 for the 100 shares that you need to return. You're out $1,000. Shorting, in short, is a strange and complicated transaction. You're selling something that you don't own, and the goal is to sell high and then buy low as opposed to the common game plan of buying low and then selling high. By the way, we have a bigger glossary of investing terms at hermoney.com, plus a guide to talking investments in any social situation. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. I want to thank Laura Cox Kaplan for the great talk. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we want to know what you're thinking. Also, take a moment to subscribe to our newsletters at hermoney.com slash sign up. 
We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with Grant Sabatier, the creator of Millennial Money and the author of Financial Freedom. We'll talk soon.